Hello, and welcome to Genderator. In this episode, I talk with an old friend. Judge Richard A. Dollinger is a judge of the New York Court of Claims and an acting Supreme Court justice assigned to matrimonial matters in Rochester, New York. Rick was a trial lawyer for 28 years. During his time in practice, he served the public as a New York State Senator. In this interview, we talk about gender allyship and what it means to be a gender partner. You can read Rick's full bio on my website, genderator.com. That's genderator with a J. You can also leave comments. I'd love to hear from you. Without further ado, here's the conversation. It's so good to see you. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining me on Genderator. I'm glad to be here. So I wanted to start out by uh, sharing with my listening audience the shout-out I gave to you as part of the um, International Men's Day this past November. And the theme of International Men's Day was positive role models. So what I put on my blog um, as part of the celebration was a shout-out to you, and it said, In 1998, Judge Dollinger was a New York State Senator, and I was his chief of staff. I was pregnant with my first child at the time. Rick gave me the support and flexibility I needed to manage the new world of parenting and working. He believed in me and never once made me feel like I didn't belong. That was a crucial time in my early career. Rick helped me clear my runway to what became a very successful career in government and politics. I will always be grateful for his unwavering faith in my abilities. And as you know, I went on to work for governors and the financial industry, and I did lots of very interesting and cool things, and I've been enjoying an amazing career. So That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. And what's so interesting to me is back then there was no talk of gender partners, gender parity, gender equity, yet I look at you and I, I, I reflect back on that as you were a very strong gender partner. And it just came to you seemingly from my perspective naturally. Mm -hmm. It was organic. You had this empathy for my position and you were able to freely support my work and and be flexible and and I never got like the pregnancy penalty Mm -hmm. from you. And I just was so interested in knowing, you know, how that came to be. Like maybe it wasn't organic. Maybe you had to learn it. how was your experience, and why were you so supportive back well, in the I, 90s? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that I grew up in a family of strong women. Uh, my grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, was the first woman elected to the Monroe County Board of Supervisors. Oh, I didn't she know was that. 5 feet 10 inches tall. She was a commanding presence in our lives. Um, she was widowed at a relatively young age, in her mid-50s, and so she was around our house a lot. And uh, she was a commanding presence. So the notion of women having a big role in family life and in family decisions was very much a part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I had the great fortune to be married to a marvelous woman who taught me a lot about um, both respect for ideas and um, a real partner for me, someone who... Uh, was uh, intellectually challenging to me and bringing me new ideas and forcing me to rethink old ones. And you combine those two things together and your personal life is dominated by the notion that uh, women are an equal partner in, uh, in everything that you do. And the other thing that happened, which really... I think influenced me in my relationship with women generally was to watch the influence of my wife on my children. Uh, 
she did a spectacular job in raising our children. I have three children. They're all successful. They've done well. They have their own families. And uh, I was just awed by watching the way my wife nurtured them when they were very young, handled them throughout their lives. And it just uh, gave me a tremendous respect for the notion that women are equal partners in this voyage. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, that's the background that brings me to my interaction with you, other members of the staff, women that I knew in politics, mm-hmm. women that I knew in government. Um, the gender issue uh, has never been uh, a hurdle for me to get over. Um, and, and as I said, it's really the milieu in which I came out of that, mm-hmm. that drove that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great shout-out to Marilyn. She is a she is a force majeure, isn't she? Well, she's certainly been a force majeure in my life. I can remember uh, one of my little anecdotes um, about Marilyn. When I ran for the Senate in 1998, they asked all the members who were, all the officials who were running for office to write an article for the op-ed, short op-ed in the paper, about the person who was most influential in your life. And... People wrote in about Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and uh, John Kennedy, Franklin Roosevelt, and I wrote six paragraphs about Marilyn and what she had meant to me. (laughs) And uh, it was amazing. The newspaper never did it again, and I think all those people were embarrassed that they didn't mention their spouses Mm -hmm. because it was really the uh, the person who's had by far the greatest influence on me is the woman I've lived with for 44 years. It's a marvelous thing. So it is so interesting to hear this because knowing what Albany was like in 1996 and and, in those years, it wasn't... um, let me put it this way. What was the old saying? They should throw up a fence around the Capitol and call it a penitentiary. I mean, it was, it was, it was not your, you know, your Puritan. Type. It wasn't. It, it, was, it, it, was, it was. Whenever you took a population that was largely male mm-hmm. and took them away from home mm-hmm. to a fraternity experience, which is what the legislature <coughs> had as a general aura, mm-hmm. you were a member of the fraternity. Um it was a temptation. Mm-hmm. There's uh, that wonderful scene uh, in Pinocchio where Pinocchio goes to Paradise Island. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you remember the scene, Stromboli takes him to Paradise <laughs> Island and all the young boys turn into donkeys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it, there's some sense that Albany, when I was there, had some of those same characteristics. That oh, it just took people, good people, and put them in an environment, into a fraternity-like environment that was... Um, loaded with temptation. Yeah. So your um, reaction and your your upbringing, your the the holistic sort of education you got on gender equity really served you well early early on. I I think so, and I um, I would also tell you one other thing. Um, it's interesting to be the father of a daughter and realize that. Every woman you come into contact with is someone's daughter just like yours. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a powerful personal message because uh, I wouldn't want anyone, I wouldn't want to treat any woman any differently than the way I would ask them to treat my daughter. Mm -hmm. And and that's really a, 
uh, a father's um, reflection upon who his daughter, my daughter's now 37 years old and has oh a little 30. baby girl and uh, has been married for two years and has a big time job in Washington. But you, you look, I look at my daughter and think, she deserves a place at the table and doesn't deserve anyone, male or female, cutting her off for not respecting mm-hmm. her uh, well-established skills and, and work ethic. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. I look at everybody as somebody's daughter. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of writing around this issue, and a lot of talking to people. I um, have uh, different focus groups, different... Um, I guess I would call them just um, uh, dialogic-type groups that just talk about these difficult issues. And one of the things that keeps coming up are are when I speak to men independently, usually between the ages of like 25 and maybe as as, uh, uh, upwards of around 55, there seems to be, you know, a disconnect where they say, especially because of the hashtag MeToo movement. I understand something's going on, um, that women are being marginalized only from what I'm reading, only from what I'm seeing. And what I'm reading and I'm seeing is horrifying. But I don't know how to be helpful. I don't know uh, what to do because I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts or any, any um, guidance for anyone listening about you know, what to be aware of? What, what does it mean to be a gender ally from your perspective? Well, I, 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 I encapsulate that in the context of a family and the sense that if you assume that every woman in the room is someone's daughter, why wouldn't you treat them the way you'd want your daughter to be treated? Mm-hmm. Would you cut them off? Would you abscond with their ideas? Would you downplay their role? Mm-hmm. Uh, would you um, would you want some other male to make advances on them? Mm-hmm. And if your answer to that is no, that's not the way my daughter should be treated. You ought to treat everybody else's daughters the same way. Mm-hmm. So you had said something earlier before we before we went on the show about um, you know we were talking about smaller ways of being a gender partner in the context of you know team building or in meetings if a woman gets talked over uh, does she have an ally in the room who will you know stop the clock or flag on the play go back let's right. hear what Kate had to say or if Kate's idea if she puts her idea out there and it, nobody says anything and then a man says the idea and everybody wakes up to that and it's the same thing you know who's there to point out that Kate does Kate have to continue right. to sort of fight her way through to be heard or or is there an ally or someone that's going to help elevate her voice and you you um, admitted that there were times where in the past you had... Um... I stole women's <laughs> ideas. I, you, you were going to get to that point, and I will admit it brazenly right up front. Um, one of the things that you're always trying to do is to figure out what the best idea is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, the tendency on behalf of uh, an over-aggressive male, which I acknowledge I have been in other contexts on many an occasion, is to reframe the idea in a more appealing way. Mm-hmm. and then take credit for it. And uh, you ask uh, a whole series of people in my political life, Kathy Smith, my good friend, Jan Miller, my good friend, Sandy Frankel, Linda Goldstein, 
I can go down the list of women that I dealt with in Paul Kathleen Mistakas, <laughs> Mel Callan, yourself. Um, I was known to steal those ideas. That's a great idea. I'll reframe it and cast it as mine. And I, I would tell you this, that from my point of view, I've done that to males too. I would probably have to admit as I sit here thinking about it that I've done it more to women than to men, but I've done it to men too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's almost uh, Darwinian in the sense that it's the survival of the best idea. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you see it, mm -hmm. you appropriate it. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the uh, gender education for me has been when women afterwards would say to me, it's a great idea. Remember when you stole it from me? <laughs> and I would have to acknowledge, yeah, I do. I remember when we had that discussion. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, there is that, that uh, competition, you know, in the workplace. It is. Well, it, it's yeah. there. There's a, a Darwinian kind of deny. competition that the strongest survive. And those who can, quite frankly, pick up the idea quickest and turn it into action are going to be the beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. I understand that. And um, I'm actually not opposed to that in the sense that good ideas, the quicker you can get them into the marketplace of ideas or get them into mm -hmm. projects or innovation, the better off we are. The, the difficulty is, and I think this is a real test, is for uh, everybody at the table to acknowledge the source. And that source may be gender-based, it may be based on race, it may be based on other factors, mm -hmm. and uh, people who are in decision-making positions have to acknowledge the sources from which those things come. Mm -hmm. When it comes to advancement, project management, Correct. pay, when, when, benefits. Right, and, and I think I really was going to backtrack on that. I was going to say that I think that that may be improving, but I don't really know that for sure. No, I don't. I would hope so, but I don't. I don't have any evidence that it is. Mm -mm -mm. I don't have any evidence that it's improving that that regard. I, I don't either, actually. But what is happening? What I'm seeing is more and more awareness, which is really where improvement starts. More people right, are and, aware. And, and I, I always get the improvement the awareness issue, but mm -hmm. unless it translates into that Darwinian yeah. exchange of ideas and, and credit, mm -hmm. we don't really get there. I mean, then... Um, well, I think that um, more representation at higher levels of marginalized populations, again, whether it's more women or people of color, you know, the more representation of those populations you have at higher levels, that's where you see change. Right. That's I don't, where you see I don't that type of that. awareness right. turn into recognition, turn into, you know, career pathing, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think so. that's, I, I buy that thesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So looking back um, behind you at some of the younger generations in the workforce, what are your thoughts on the um, hashtag MeToo hangover? And what I mean by that is the articles that are coming out, the conversations that are happening about how men are, are afraid 
not again it's it's a broad brush but you're hearing and seeing articles about men being afraid of mentoring women men being afraid of socializing with women in a work context but you know the, the happy hours or whatever and so the very thing that they say women need to get in front of leadership um to get more face time to get their ideas heard their voices heard their reputations mm-hmm. built up is starting they're starting to get a little bit of pushback um do you have any thoughts on that or well, it's, it's interesting in here you formulate it that way. Uh, from my point of view, um, it's really about touch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, that the, the line that, uh, that shouldn't be crossed is uh, what the law would define as battery, an unconsented touching. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always tried to be uh, extraordinarily careful about who I touch and how I touch them. And because uh, I, I believe that um, when you make, you know, uh, Frank, well, I'll use the, the simplest example. I'm not a hugger, mm-hmm. I, I, and I'm not an ersatz kisser. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I, I don't like greeting even very close friends by standing there and giving them a hug and then kissing them on the cheek. I just, um, it's, I, I'm leery of the misinterpretation of physical contact. And for me, that's where the line is drawn, um, that you can socialize with members of the opposite sex, uh, you can... Uh, work with them in close proximity, you know, work at a workstation. Or, but when you uh, lean over their shoulder and put your hands on their shoulder, as far as I'm concerned, you're, you're crossing that line. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell everyone that you don't need to be afraid about interaction with members of the other sex so long as you don't engage in unconsenting physical contact. I think that's what uh, A, can clearly be misinterpreted, Mm -hmm. and B, um, it can be seen as threatening. Mm -hmm. And what I don't understand, and it's probably just my own personal preference, but I don't understand why it's necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't, I, I just have never understood that. You don't need to put your arm around I don't put my arm around other males except my two sons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just, I, I believe that, that the, the pushback comes because men are afraid that their um, reactions will be misinterpreted. And my advice to any man who feels that is, just don't do the one thing that is most easily misinterpreted, and that's touching someone. Just stay away from that. Shake their hand. Mm-hmm. Give them a fist bump. Yeah. You don't need to hug them. You don't need to, you know, embrace them side to side. Um, I I think I think you can have an engaging and uh, productive interaction with women and not have to run the risk of being misinterpreted when you make physical contact with them. I, I maybe it's just me because for me that's sort of the line that I. I believe you have to avoid. I've always tried to avoid, and um, 
it's interesting. Uh, both women and men that I've known who know of my sort of phobia of touching of that kind of thing will say to me, it's just your chicken. And I don't think I am. I just, I don't That's an want, interesting I, I don't want anyone to misinterpret uh, my physical contact with them. Mm-hmm. What do you think then about um, false accusations? As a lawyer and a judge, I'm concerned about false accusations. I would tell you that I think it takes a lot of courage for someone to come forward and make a claim that there was an unconsented touching or unconsented act between two adults, or for that matter, two teenagers. I, I think it's I think there can be deep emotional scars that are caused by unconsented touching at various stages in people's lives and that it's incredibly difficult for people to come forward. I always find it fascinating that uh, the accused will immediately say, you know, that never happened. Um, what, what I find is, at least in my own sort of view of it, um, there are so many instances where those initial um, uh, negative responses turn out to be true. I mean, Bill Cosby continually asserted that he wasn't uh, guilty of any of those things. Uh, others who've been involved, Elliot Spitzer. I mean, there just there's a parade of of uh, of men who came forward and said, "No, it isn't true." When it started, and then eventually pled guilty or took other pleas or had other difficulties. I I believe that are there instances in which memories can be fabricated? Sure, there are. But I'm not convinced that women who come forward many years later to complain of improper sexual uh, contact uh, should not be credited. I, I don't. I, I think that's a courageous thing to do. And uh, again, I go back to my own life experience. My daughter came in and said that that happened. I wouldn't doubt it for a split second, not a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that, and part of this is, you look at these situations, even in the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. I mean, what's interesting about that, his mother and father were alive and her mother and father were alive. And all I can think of is, there's a mother and father saying, this is something that happened to my daughter, and there's another mother and father there saying, this is something that my son wasn't involved in. Uh, those are difficult things to weed through, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it takes a lot of courage to step forward and say these things happened. What I would suggest is that in many, many cases, um, the accusations have been true. So um, the, the, in the aftermath of hashtag MeToo and the fear that some people feel that they're concerned about being with with women in the context of you know their work relationship and there that really is um, uh, it is a fear it's a fear and I think that uh, management has a lot to do with sort of making sure that the parameters are are laid out and that that women aren't now being excluded from accelerating into into anything they want to do that they're capable from qualified for so that actually leads me to my next question, and, and you had indicated that um, 
you could speak to accelerating women and advancing women into more leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Corn Ferry and the Rockefeller Center uh, joined together to do a study on the gender gap in um, profit and loss leadership. And uh, what one of the leading researchers said was, um, there's a lack of P&L leadership that women represent in the workforce. It takes a bit longer for women to be selected. I would suppose that's relative to the perceived risk because there aren't that many track records and belies unconscious bias that exists. It takes about 30% longer to place a woman in a CEO role. It takes women up to f about four years longer and roughly 1.5 additional roles before they get appointed. So there's this, there's, it's almost like a drag. You know, I picture and those, those, uh, those exercise regimens where someone's got like a tire tied to mm -hmm. their back and they're right. running. You know, that's what, that's what that sounds like to me. So um, there's a, a, a very real sort of drag on women as they're moving forward trying to achieve higher roles and more executive positions. Right. Well, I think part of that um, is starting to change, uh, frankly, because of the role of women in government. Um, you have uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House. You have Andrea Stewart-Cousins as the leader of the Senate majority in New York. You have five Democratic women running for president. Uh, those models begin to break out of the plaster mold of the impression of women. Um, I am not surprised by the drag on women's achievement that comes because of childbearing. I'm just not, mm -hmm. I'm not surprised by it. Um, I think that's a uh, cultural hurdle that we are still trying to figure out how to jump over. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, um, I think it's a drag on uh, overall women's performance in large measure because we uh, really make childbearing an individual effort and not a community effort. We don't have federally funded child care. We, uh, we really force uh, women to pick up the entire brunt of rearing children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the office space isn't set up to on-ramp re-enter, you know, Correct. It's, level. Um, they're, they're, the incentives for fathers to take parental leave aren't, aren't that Correct. The, the system is, uh, the American system is set up uh, to, uh, rightly or wrongly, you could look at it and saying it disincentivizes, mm -hmm. or you could just say it pure and simple discourages mm -hmm. childbearing. <coughs> My wife's family is from Canada. 13 months leave at half pay if you have a child in Canada. <laughs> it's a pretty good gig. Instead yeah. of going back to work, my daughter's, my granddaughter was born in November, and my daughter goes back to work, I think, April 1st. Yeah. <coughs> Five months in. Mm -hmm. And she got a great package. Uh, she works for Barclays Bank. But thank you. Uh, but the point is, um, we really don't have the incentives to show that we're sensitive to uh, the role that women play in rearing children, and we economically 
don't have a system that equalizes the playing field thereafter. Mm-hmm. And the flow of cultural change is going to happen in fits and starts. Mm-hmm. And do I see a march toward a better understanding? I do. Can I tell you that it's moving at the pace it should? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. But but it's a culture change, mm-hmm. and it just takes a huge effort to make it happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there are two ways to look at it, and one is to say, we haven't come nearly far enough. <coughs> but if you were uh, my mother in 1955 and said, this is where we'd be in 2019, she'd tell you you were crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's to some extent been a remarkable revolution, mm-hmm. but it isn't complete, and it won't be, uh, in my opinion, until successive generations occur and more of these boundaries get rubbed away. Yes. You know, it's interesting. The reason I'm working on this project is because, from my perspective, gender issues aren't owned by women. Yet, every time you hear gender issues, I think a lot of people just go to, oh, it's a a woman's thing. I just read something from the Harvard Business Review. These authors were talking about um, when you include men in these women's groups. And I actually put it on my website, genderator.com, about how much progress a company sees if they actually integrate men into these types of conversations with women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the stat was, let's see, when men are deliberately engaged in gender inclusion programs, 96% of organizations see progress with gender equity compared to only 30% of organizations where men are not engaged. And I think that issues like fear of, of hashtag me too, um, just not understanding what what women may be facing, that starts to get, again, like you said, erased away when you facilitate these conversations. I, I, I think that's true too. I, I think... Um um, much like many cultural changes, it, it goes sort of person to person. And, yeah. and um, what's interesting, and as we sit here talk about gender change, um, you know, the Declaration of Sentiments from Seneca Falls was 1848, and they got the right to vote in the first federal election in 1920, um, 72 years later. Three, really four generations of women later mm-hmm. didn't mm-hmm. happen. So... That kind of cultural change, mm-hmm. and the, that was a change that entirely depended upon men, because mm-hmm. there weren't any women in the in the voting right. booth. Right. So I am uh, so thrilled that you were joining me today. Thank you so much. Glad for your to time. be here. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. It was. Thanks so much.